Okay, welcome to you talking with Greg. I have my glorious friend here, Alexander Bard. Alexander, thanks for so much coming on in. And uh, I owe you a great debt of gratitude, friend. You know, you, you know, I got bumped into my program a little bit, and all of a sudden, I landed into the intellectual deep web and the crazy world of Alexander Bard, and have been enlightened. Uh, ever since, friends. So thank you. Well, so the much. same to you, Greg. And what is interesting about you is a combo is, of course, that I'm a philosopher, so I'm conducting an art form, but okay. an art form that tries to be as close to science as possible. And it's like right. you come in from the other side. You're obviously a, a clinical psychologist. You work with cognitive science, but you're also try, trying to make the science you work metaphysically and philosophically coherent as well. So it's like we're the implicate version or explicate version of each other. So. Ah, I love it. Yes, Absolutely. yes, yes. yes. That's yes. why we're having these conversations to begin. Totally, totally right. Uh, and uh, so I, I love that. And I'm embedded, as you taught me, with to be much more aware of uh, my history and roots and be able to frame what the whole tree of knowledge grows out of as American clinical psychology and referencing between Kant and uh, Newton in many ways. And then to open up into anywhere from Hegel to Zizek and, and uh, the Zoroastrian world. So it's really been fascinating uh, to follow your line of thought and uh, what you bring to that. So I, I definitely appreciate that. And I love the fact that we're playing, you know, from philosopher and art to into science, from uh, science into pragmatic living, well-being. Uh, we also share, you have an interest in both psychoanalysis and psychiatry, and of course, I'm a clinical psychologist, so it's really cool to have all those shared interests. Yeah, we love the psyche, let's put it that yes, way. Yes, we both yeah. love the psyche. We did a, we did a thing on that. So uh, what's, what's new in your world, Bard? Uh, you know, we can talk a little bit. One of the things I'll throw out there, one of the things that you and I have bantered around a bit in terms of our relation and our framing is that uh, I kind of think about with a tree of knowledge and kind of an enlightenment 2.0 kind of frame of reference where we're trying to get aspects of the logos down that we have missed. Uh, and often at the, uh, the intellectual deep web, I see sort of a dark Renaissance vibe. Yeah, I agree. I think the internet is fantastic. And, and the fact that so much information is now being made, made available to so many people around the world is a fantastic force for good. Maybe it's chaos at first and it becomes order only later, but I think it's a fantastic thing that happens. And, and I wanna be part of that. But the internet is also such a radically different phenomenon from anything we experienced in the past in human history that we really need to look at this with fresh glasses. Totally. And that is why you and I also talked about a paradigm shift. Absolutely. That means there was a paradigm we came out of a certain society where we became literate. We had the printing press, we had mass media, we got academics, we got politics and democracy, uh, and we got, we got a prospering industry and industrial economy, and we all reaped the benefits from the enormous wealth that we created out of that. And we also arrived at a site that at least then could accept that the diversity of opinions was a good thing. Right. Yep. So we came out of that paradigm. What has happened over the last 30 years uh, is that it's become obvious to us that the Internet eats everything in its way and it will leave very little left. Yeah. And we have a crisis of the old institutions where at least I defend the fact that this is something that we have to go through. The old institution is not going to return in any meaningful way. Rather, we have to sort of deconstruct them and reconstruct something entirely different to get some kind of order to the world that makes sense to us. And that's why I'm interested in, in all kinds of sense-making work. You're one of my best friends in America today, but the other friends I have like Jordan Hall, Daniel yep. Smachtenberger, Cattle Last, sure. Peter Lindbergh, uh -huh. all the friends that are involved with us more or less with the intellectual deep web, all my friends yep. in North America today mm -hmm. are involved with sense-making. 
like systemic sense right. making. How can and you know me and John? Of systemically course, systemically makes sense, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And John Favarke is a shared friend. We both record podcasts with him, and we also record podcasts together with him. So people can find all these things, and and, and if they want to dig deeper into into these things that we share. But let, let's go into this sort of continuous discussion of philosophy and psychology that you and I love so much. Totally, absolutely, absolutely. So where am I at? Yeah, I've used the Corona year to write like so many other people have. I mean, if you're, if you're a writer, at least part-time, mm-hmm. this was the great year to write a book. My, all my friends who are writers wrote books this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book I'm working with, uh, with John Sedekvist on, probably the most ambitious one we ever did. Okay. Um, we published hopefully in 2022. And the working title is already known. It's Process and Event. Process and we're basically, we're rewriting the history of the East and the West as mm-hmm. a history of trade routes rather right. than fixed entities. And, the, and I'm Silk into, Road I mean, stuff, huh? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The Silk Road is central to this work because we're interested in processal truth, like uh, truth as process and also not, not truth as in, in a fixed entity of any kind whatsoever. I'm, I'm a radical anti-Platonist, mm-hmm. but yes. I think Sadekvist and I are going to come out. We're going to go after the Gnostics big time. We're going to go after yeah. Gnosticism because that was dualism in all its form was always the problem. And, and, and Gnosticism is the fundamental entity of dualism as is practice. So we're critical of Christian, Christianity and Islam in this work right, we're working right. at the moment, but we also present the proper alternatives that we, that, that we would like to defend going forward towards what actually must be a global philosophy from now on, mm-hmm. because we are all involved in an Eastern and Western and Northern and Southern, right. Northern and Southern conversation. And we got to, we got to agree on certain things again, to make sense. We so, can't have different local senses made because they will not make sense unless there's a global coherence to the sense making. Amen. And you, I will say, I have about I've done about as broad a swath of, of analysis of the very sense-making narratives. And you find yourself in Zoroastrian and Persia and and really see that this sort of is the the root of philosophy isn't like with Greeks for you, it really goes into the Zoroastrian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the word philosophia in Greek is a mm-hmm. literal translation of the Persian Masta Yasna, which mm-hmm. means the love of wisdom. Uh, Masta Yasna is 1200 years older than the word philosophia. So, guess yeah. who invented it? Like, if you're going <laughs> to give credit to where credit is due to begin right. with, and then hopefully also find more because we do so. Right. Uh, that's the way to go. Uh, I would say that there's also in the East in general, no difference between philosophy and religion, or you would say philosophy mm-hmm. and theology. They're one of the same thing. Right. And theology is just an even deeper attempt at explaining how the world operates and be able to speculate on how the world operates. And these things are of course needed in the narratives we're looking for. I would okay. say the Persians invented dialectics. Okay. It's something you don't necessarily find in India and China, at least not as a dominant mm. mode. But with the Persians, dialectics became dominant. Mm. And that is precisely because there are three rather than two narratives that we mm. human beings, you know, mm. have about ourselves. It's the pathos and the logos and the mythos. Right. And because we can never find unity between the three, they have very different purposes. Mm-hmm. And we can only try to find a unity between logos and pathos by defining it as mythos. But because mythos doesn't really nail neither logos or pathos, the mm. process has to be continued all the time. And this, right. of course, the great philosopher of this and the West was Hegel. 
Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why we, we all owe it to Hegel, what we try to understand and we call process philosophy. Mm-hmm. And next to the process, which is where truth resides in processful mm-hmm. truth, like okay. faith is always something that uncover itself as we go along throughout history. Mm-hmm. But, but, but along with the process, there's also the possibility for events, for radical events, like things that happen that change the history forever. Okay. And this mm-hmm. is very much the history of the West. It's mm. really the history of the Middle East that later mm-hmm. became the history mm-hmm. of the West. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in event, simply for Christianity, that is definitely Christ on the cross. Right, right. And I think you and I and most of us, people who get involved with us here in this conversation mm-hmm. would say that events today are more like technological events, like, right. like the arrival of written language, the arrival of printed right. language, the arrival of interactive language are radical transformations that, that completely change the environment within which we humans live and totally. act. And therefore they change what it means to be human. Totally, totally. And I see this, the emergence of the internet, di- digital, virtual, uh, techno world as being, you know, arguably maybe the biggest single technological event that we have seen. I don't know. It could be. It's definitely on a par with the rival written language. And we know yeah. how, how that completely radically changed the world. Totally. Permanent settlements would never have occurred unless we had written language first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Simply because of the amount of information we need to have access to and then to process at right. these different events. And that's, that's how at least Söderqvist and I and I defined technological paradigm shift, the fundamental information technological paradigm shift, because technology, just like biology, is ultimately information, right? Totally. So, so the information involved here is that if you have more information available, at first it's just more information available, like right. the internet is today. Most right. of it is junk. We can't figure out how to sort it out. But we do build algorithms to try to get through all that. Right. It's like our conversation eventually, somebody needs to build an algorithm just to find the stuff in the conversations because there's so many out there, right? right. That's exactly right. how the internet operates. But we are building those algorithms. And even if they're clumsy today, and even if they're being manipulated and corrupted and all kinds of shit that's going on with yep. our algorithms, eventually we go towards pure, clean, free, open algorithms because we will demand them as users. Yes. And then we can process all the information we have available to us. And then we can move that into a more intelligent world with AI totally. and things like that. Yeah, totally. We share an interest in emergence vector theory and emergence in general. And certainly you mentioned, you know, thinking about technology as major shifts in information processing. In fact, that's one of the big insights of the tree of knowledge. If we look at the natural history of the world, the shifts in information processing, communication with life, mind and culture. And, you know, I see digital as sort of like this macro information processing shift, but those fundamentally change the information energy flows and give rise to whole new landscapes. Yeah, you, I would say that you cannot go into Barts and Seneca's world and you cannot go into Greg Henrique's world unless you get rid of reductionism first. Right. So, so okay. Most thinking is built on reductionism because we take to it, humans take to it because it's the most simple fairy tale that exists. So yep. either everything goes down all the way down to some kind of atom into which everything was built called the laws of nature or whatever, and they were fixed from the very beginning. Okay, right. if you had laws of nature fixed from the very beginning, like the Big Bang was pre-programmed, uh-huh, then there must uh-huh. be creator God. You can't get rid of the creator God unless you throw out exactly what he was supposed to have done, which was to pre-program the universe so everything would deterministically follow from that. Okay? Totally. So, but you, you must also watch out to not do reductionism the other way, which a lot of human beings do, which is very popular, especially with California New Age people, because right? mm. they go all the way to the psyche 
Right. To the human consciousness, especially their own consciousness, which seems to be incredibly <laughs> important. You know, all these people who go to Bali to experience ego death, they have the biggest right. egos you could ever find, right? So they can't obviously not kill it. They just experience something so the egos can get even bigger. So right. the big ego thing there involved means that they will then look for finding remnants of psyche or proto-psyche and absolutely everything all the way down to that atom. Right. So even and if they like go down to an atom that is somehow has a psyche or they go from the atom all the way up to the psyche and says that the psyche was pre-programmed in the atom. Both these two things are wrong. And, and we must understand how much of thinking uh, in our world and how much of science assumes reductionism. Totally. And what you and I've done in our work instead go for what we call correctly emergence vector theory. So yep. things happen. Okay. <laughs> Biology started somewhere. Yep. Somewhere it just got started, right? Mm -hmm. Physics started somewhere. Chemistry started somewhere. Mind occurred for the first time somewhere. Uh, language occurred for the first time somewhere. You know, culture certainly, technology started somewhere. All these things could be perceived as emergences that suddenly just occurred. We don't know why, we don't have to know why, but we know they happened. And out of those came specific laws that relate to those fields, right. those domains. Right. And that's what science should do properly is to check out, okay, historically something started somewhere and out of that came certain laws within that right. domain. And those well, laws habit, are working You call it habits out. often. I love the way you frame them as habits, right? Sometimes- Yeah, I actually habits say habits nature. prior to the emergence. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm actually mm -hmm. using okay. the words like, so, so say before biology started to exist, it was probably some kind of very extreme conditions that had mm -hmm. to exist for something as complex as life to occur right. for the first time. Right. And then the rest of life came out of that. But mm -hmm. if it did occur only, one, only once, maybe we, let's assume it occurred only once, right? right. Uh, then the habits were the preconditions before the emergence that okay. made the emergence possible. Mm -hmm. So the emergence wasn't pre-programmed, it wasn't yep. determined, but it was certainly made possible, undeniably mm -hmm. so. That's a law of mm -hmm. causality. So it was made and the habits of nature are the conditions that exist, for example, within chemistry mm -hmm. and physics right. as prior emergence factors before biology can kickstart. Gotcha. And that's only what biology has happened. Biology is the explicate version of the physics and the chemistry. The potential the habits so, of the thing, yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we call laws of nature. And this is actually Charles Sanders Peirce, Mm. An American philosopher in the 19th century yes, first came up with this idea, said that before we can talk about laws, we must talk about habits. And when mm. the habits are repeated and mm. tend to come back to the same point and are of the mm. same nature, mm. you know, over time, then right. we, when we perceive them as laws, right? And we, the original laws in religion were perceived as they came from God and God told human beings how we must live. It's called 10 commandments. And that's where we try to find laws in nature. And there are laws in nature, but I would say you can only determine a law of nature within the emergence factor they have to define first. Right, right. Yeah. And then that's, and that's really what we agree. I think totally. I'm saying this because it's very important to understand your system and to understand our system and see how they're right. compatible. Is right. Because we're dealing with two different emergence vectors. We're yep. concentrating at least on two different emergence vectors. And that's right. why they're aligned, these, these two projects. Totally, right. And for me, the emergence vector, the clarity of the emergence vector of the animal mind animal mental behavior, coming out of the Cambrian explosion, what does that mean? How did the nervous system get yoked to regulate the sensory motor function of the body? And then ultimately the nervous system, then that goes all the way from insects up to primates. And then we get the human primates thinking up and then talking and then boom, that justification narrative that then spreads into logos, mythos, pathos, uh, the cultivation of the, our tribal narratives. Those are of course the two 
fundamental things that afforded me then to give a big picture view of the very, and classify the different kinds of emergence vectors and make sense out of it. And we can, we can add an example here to engage more people. We haven't built a quantum computer yet that works. Mm. We don't know if we can, because okay. it doesn't exist yet. So right. uh, unless we've succeeded, we won't know that we can do that. Okay? Right. Unforeseeable things can happen that makes it impossible, mm. or at least prolonged or whatever. Right. But we can imagine that that's not completely impossible, that a quantum sure. computer will exist in the not too distant future. Okay. Right. We right now live in the habitual implicate order of the quantum computer. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. It's a perfect example mm-hmm. to use today, but if a quantum mm-hmm. computer is up and running somewhere in the world and somebody says, oh, we got a quantum computer that works according to what we specified previously, right. would have to be qualified as a quantum computer. But undeniably, here is one, and it worked, and we know why it worked. Right. Then the habits that we're experimenting with right now to see what could you do to make this yep. work will be lost. And what's interesting here, well, that's like figuring out the laws of nature so the quantum computer could operate, but actually it isn't because there are no quantum computers in nature as we know it. Totally, right, yes. So it's, it's, not, it's not certain at all right. that there are yeah. any laws of nature out there in physics and chemistry right. and biology that could really lead us to then build a machine called the quantum computer because we will actually have to tame, domesticate and co-invent with nature mm-hmm. in such a way that chance must be involved probably at some, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And certainly determinants will be involved in some of the processes right. because right. the quantum computing itself operates at least temporarily as an indeterministic phenomenon. We know right. that for sure. Right. So built into those conditions, it's kind of nice to say that, yeah, here's, we thought, you know, we. Our work totally. is theological. We call it sin right. theology, both you and right. I. Is, is that yes, yes, you know. it, there could be something coming along in the future that could have what we would today consider have even divine qualities to it. Right. And I think a quantum computer in that sense would be something that would be scarily divine to us as we are today. And totally. it's precisely now we live in the habitual environment we try to build quantum computers. We don't know right. how they're going to work. It's completely experimental. And once a computer, quantum computer is up and running, it will definitely have rules of its own, how we can operate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we will have to tame nature with and collaborate with nature to try, actually try to, to nail. Right. right, And that will then become a new set of laws with a new emergence vector, which is the emergence vector of quantum computing. Yep, yep. And I love the way you create you know, the habits and then really create the potentia. You often refer to as yes. potentia that can set the stage for the real generative mechanisms that then realize the actual emergence. And we have to think deeply about what those contexts of potentia are. And you uh, just laid some of that out. Yeah, because once something undeniably exists in an ontic sense, we call it actualist. It's been actualized. Mm -hmm. So we can think of our own lives that way too. I mean, you might dream about going to bed with a certain girl tomorrow or a certain girl dreams about going to bed with you tomorrow. It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) And because it hasn't materialized yet, it's not been actualized, but the potential for it is certainly there if both of you are around tomorrow at the same party, hopefully as well. So, you know, the potential actuality is great to talk about in general. It helps you in life to talk about the potential, then to talk about the probability, which is how likely you could even calculate mm-hmm. it is that a certain potential becomes an actualis. Right, yeah. right, absolutely. And, and that, that, that um, John Wolf and John Verbeekoff talks about then the liminal space of the possible for us that can imagine our futures and then the implication that that has. And you can actually think about perhaps habits of thought that then set the stage for potentials that are realized and how we actually wanna cultivate our particular space uh, right oh, here. It is you know. fundamental to ethics. It is, 
we are making pragmatic calculations when we do ethics, if we're honest about it. So, so you remove morality here. Don't yes, talk about morality. Yeah. But, but let's talk about uh, ethics here. Ethics is how we actually, that's what philosophers do. It's like, right. how do you properly calculate Make or value decisions. different things that are involved yeah. in important decisions that you need to make. So you're prepared to make those decisions once they're in front of you. I mean, we all know that we can't really predict exactly what's going to happen in our lives. But we know that people are better prepared when they got a decision in front of them and have to make it instantly. We'll make the right decision. And if you're not prepared, you will just, you'll probably make the wrong decision, right? So that's what ethics deals with. Like, could we could we foresee what's going to happen and calculate probabilities is central to that when you do ethics. And that's exactly why in ethics is often the most extreme cases that are most interesting to ethics mm. where even if the chance that this would really come true, the ambition, yeah. whatever is mm. minuscule, it's worth it anyway. Right. Right. It's worth, it's worth it anyway. It's really worth to, identify with this act, identify mm -hmm. with this decision, truth as an act is called in ethics, mm -hmm. to do it because the capacity for it will be fantastic. Another, once again, we use technology here. They're now building a, a nuclear fusion power reactor in France with basically mm -hmm. the entire world is involved. This is one of okay. the rare cases where the Chinese and the Russians and the Americans and the French oh, really? and the Japanese mm -hmm. are collaborating because okay. they all benefit from the know-how if this mm -hmm. succeeds. Okay. Because you all know that if we do manage to build a nuclear fusion power reactor that works, mm. and it has to create to, to work, it, it will create at least 10 times more energy than we put into it. We will permanently forever have solved the problem having access to reliable, cheap energy in the world. Totally. It will solve every problem humanity has. <laughs> that will be a big one. Yeah, and it's <laughs> fiendishly difficult. It's not gonna happen over say the next 70 years at least. Mm. You look at the probabilities. Uh, and although a lot of work is put into this, a lot of money, it's one of those ethical acts where even if it's almost impossible mm. to build a nuclear fusion power reactor, the benefits if we succeed, and there are also implications, and, and the fact that NOAA will be spread globally to all cultures. Right. Thinking of open source here, and this is the ultimate open source product, and actually right. it's happening. And, and, and that is, that's, why, that's why I, as a philosopher, of course, I'm thrilled to go right. there and check right. out what they're doing right. and how it works. Right. And right. Right. Yeah. But, but it's, it's really the ethical spirit in me that loves it so much, because if, if you could actually tame something that, that could happen, and this is what we do in ethics, you deal with probabilities where a very, very low probability could still make an act really worth pursuing mm -hmm. simply mm -hmm. because the benefits could be such, so enormous. Right. So when you look out, I'm curious, to, I wanted to ask you this, and so I'm glad we're here. When you look out at sort of the landscape before us in terms of where we are in the digital and the flux and the change in where we are, are you feeling uh, optimistic? I mean, are you, do you feel like we're, you know, are you scared? Are you, how, what are you, what are you feeling about the unfolding of the future as we find it. Well, I'm, I'm thankfully Freudian enough to, to realize the death drive is at the bottom of it all. So uh, <laughs> one of my colleagues in Europe, Peter Sloterdijk, the very famous and charismatic German philosopher, he once said that, well, everybody's always known that if we're working ourselves towards our own death and everything in our lives becomes meaningful precisely because we're mortals, mm -hmm. and also the gods have to be mortal at the end of the day. And if mm -hmm. nothing else, fate will decide that there'll be a drastic change of the rules in heaven too, and the gods will one day become <laughs> mortal. They just think they're immortal until that happens. Right. Right? Right. So I would say, I, I think there is, um, 
I think it's actually in the deepest sense impossible to think what it means to be human unless also mankind has a dead end. The, 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 okay. there, there is a stop mm -hmm. somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. There's an end goal to humanity where we succeeded at whatever we could do and something else mm -hmm. takes mm -hmm. over. Mm -hmm. And I, I go into that in the new book that at least the masculine dream here is that mm -hmm. we will by then have created technology that could conquer outer space because we <laughs> failed at it because we're humans or something. Right, so right. I'm, I'm not worried about humanity because in my philosophy, we, we could die and that's okay. Right, right, okay. So, gotcha. so, but if you then talk about the probabilities we survive another 100 years, yeah, mm -hmm. I think they're pretty okay. I yeah. think climate change means that a lot of lazy people will have to move. <laughs> Okay. I don't Fair think that's necessarily yeah. a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, but why don't we give Siberia to the Bangladeshis? You know? Mm. And at the end of the day, if you look at the world map today, women don't like to give birth to children any longer. They prefer dogs mm. in yeah. you know, the vast majority of countries. Even the Chinese have stopped breeding. Right. Uh, there will be only about 700 million Chinese 100 years from now compared to the 1.4 billion we have today. And a lot of populations are apparently on the road towards extinction anyway, because they're not yeah. breeding any longer. Right. The only exception is Africa. Right. Africans are breeding like mad. And we could expect by the year 2100 that nine out of the 10 biggest cities in the world will be African. So we'll have a lot of African migrants who try to cross into Europe and America and Asia simply because you know, Africa will be overpopulated and there's plenty of space everywhere else. Right. So, so yeah, so, so, so when you look at it that way, those are the real big changes over the next 50 to 100 years, which are demographic. That's why futurologists are very interested in that. Because I think the only thing the scientists of the future can say with certainty is that we know who breeds and we know who doesn't breed. And those who breed will have more kids and those who don't breed will certainly not have kids. So, you know, if you look at that, it's going to happen. If you then mix that with digital, yes. Right. I, I, think, I think a dream we will talk about a lot in the next, you know, decade or so is what yep. we call sensocracy, mm -hmm. which is the fact that we can afford to build satellites to cover the entire planet. Right. So everybody can communicate with everybody, but also yep. we can get data from everywhere. I'm still waiting for the first Google map for New Guinea. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's a valley of visit in Southern New Guinea that's still not on Google maps, although 500,000 people live in that valley, but that's because they have no roads. Okay. Interesting. The Google maps has to have a road they can drive a car on to then have a map. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, a stupid yeah. idea. Google decided to build the beautiful Google maps, but you know, so unless there's a road there and a guy with a t-shirt and jeans sitting in the car, driving back and forth, we're not going to have that map, but maybe satellites can make up for that. If Google mm. connect their satellites and then find mm -hmm. out, because I want the map of the entire planet, because once we have the map of the entire planet, we will also have satellite coverage of the entire planet. We can then get data everywhere and we can stop guessing about climate. And we can mm. stop guessing about ecology and we can stop guessing. We can have sensors everywhere in the oceans and we can actually find out and we can have the data. So you say, if you, if you want to fight the Corona pandemic, it would have yep. helped if we had more data. Sure. And wherever we had data, we're going to fight down the disease and we'll be over by the end of the year. And wherever in the world, including in Africa, where we do not have data, we're going to have a prolonged pandemic that will last for decades. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so that's a perfect example. Now, of right. course, we don't want to have a police state do it because the Chinese version of the censocracy already existed. It called communist China. Well, right. then it's, you know, I see communist China as a big kick in the butt for the rest mm. of us. Like, if right. you want to present a free and open alternative that has power sharing, yeah. like the US constitution built into right. it from day one, you better right. work on it now because the Chinese have an idea of sensocracy. We don't. 
Yes, no, that's I totally. But, but I terrible. think sociocracy can save the planet. Mm. But the question is, would that be in an authoritarian or totalitarian manner? Right. Like the Chinese would love to do and think it's the only way you can do it. Right. Or will it be in a more free and open collaborative manner? And that I find philosophically incredibly interesting. And of course, Sadiqist and I take side with the free and open alternative. We're totally. working on it. That's it works so much with hackers and you know other people who, who are engaged in open source platforms online. Yeah. All right. So uh, in these conversations, I weave in a comment that I told you about so you can then react to. So the, I'm framed this you talking with Greg podcast, at least for the first several, you know, 15 or 20 conversations, at least to riff off of the idea that we're in search of a coherent naturalistic ontology that can revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. So, okay, uh, I'm not I'm not big on the revitalization, but I can do the destruction part. Okay, yeah, uh, right, of the previous well, that, of the previous failed thing. alternative, and you can do the construction part of the new alternative because you are a scientist. So, I mean, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be a scientist unless it said that the revitalization is not a philosophical claim; it's a scientific ambition. Mm. I highly respect it. So, mm -hmm. when it comes to psychology, it started good. It started well, it started as a natural science, and that's why I love that you talk about the animal mind and start there, right. okay? It also gives a lot of friends among people who hate people but love dogs. <laughs> that's true. So it's good for your finances too. <laughs> but okay, let's start there. So okay. um, building from that, psychology lost it when psychology became a science in the service of the government. Mm -hmm. Because then it became the repair shop. And it became of the modern yeah. economy. So yeah. any worker who couldn't work you know, any longer in the factory or even more so any worker was a white collar worker could work any longer in the office. You know, they were sent off to a doctor for medical examination and the doctor said, well, I can't find anything with you. And then they were sent off to the shrinks of the world. Yeah, that's right. And psychology became the department of service to the government in fixing people. Now, that's not a bad idea to fix people. They said, no, not necessarily. But the overall goal here was just to fix people back into a system where they could be a cog in the system. And in psychoanalysis, why psychoanalysis became a different discipline and took on an artistic route after Freud's yep. failed ambitions of becoming a scientist, yep. was the psychoanalysis decided then to say, okay, psychoanalysis became more a monasterial activity. Like you would walk totally. outside of all the, I'm, I'm going to turn on the light here just for a second. So yeah, 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 make, so, Go. yeah I'm no, not we're... disappearing in the camera. Yep, yeah. that makes sense. Maybe I'm too dark now, I don't know. But it's, it'll be no, Okay. <laughs> Your voice sounds so, We can go back there. So, um, so psychology became a science that was sort of domesticated and put into the service in the academic world to governments and yep. eventually to large corporations. Totally. And we went towards a society with 100% therapy. Yep. And we're going towards society with 100% addictions. Yep. <laughs> So we're all becoming addicted and we're all kind of psychologically sick one way or the other or pathological, or whatever. Well, we are, we always were. But psychoanalysis knew that from day one. But what psychoanalysis did was to say, okay, we're not a science. We failed at becoming a science. We can leave it to psychology and to psychiatry, which mm -hmm. is a social and a natural science, undeniably so. And yep. then psychoanalysis can instead become an art form. And that revolution starts with Jacques Lacan. Mm -hmm. And therefore, psychoanalysis is allied with philosophy. That's why I do psychoanalysis, whereas right. you do psychology. Totally. Now, I, the one great thing with psychoanalysis after that, from the 1950s forward, is that it's become the place where philosophy could be conducted. conducted. Right. Because as a psychoanalyst, I cannot be aligned with the government because I must be right. allowed to open my 
analysts on my patient to be completely critical of the corporation they work for, totally. to be completely critical of the government uh, of the country where they live, or completely critical of everything. Because that's why critical studies starts with psychoanalysis, the, the good one. Okay, so yep. so. Yep. So that's why psychoanalysis was kind of this minoritarian, smaller movement that worked in the world of art and philosophy. And these days we do psychoanalysis. You don't treat people if they're sick or have mental disorders. You send them off to psychologists first or even a psychiatrist and say, no, 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 you go and fix yourself mentally because now these days psychoanalysis is such a hard thing to go through totally. that you must be <clears throat> like psychedelics. You must be absolutely healthy to go through this process, but you will certainly existentially find out who you are, what kind of society you live in because that is the process you do in psychoanalysis. So psychoanalysis is then greatly enriched philosophy. That's why you have guys like me and Slavoj Žižek and Peter Sloterdijk and uh, even Jordan Peterson is moving towards, he's coming from clinical psychology and is more or less forced to become a philosopher because you, you have to do these things. That, that, that's, totally. that's what philosophy is. But psychology needs to be reconquered. And that's why I love your product because it needs to be taken back from the service of government and institutions to become, again, a natural science, the way it Amen. should be. But yeah. I think at the end of the day, your product has to even leave academia because it has to go out and in the sort of digital monasteries that we're creating after the corona now, where people locate to the countryside, get some friends together, go into deep studies, to study the things they really love to know more about and become experts on. I think that's where a new psychology could actually prosper. I think, in fact, I'm actually, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually, it looks like I'm going to give up my clinical license it, precisely because I'm feeling more and more alienated from the institution. I'm looking I'm more, you know, uh, you know, I get socialized in American clinical psychology and a product of that in a particular way. Um, and there, although I have, I love it, there's a huge amount of work to be done in relationship to it. At the same time, it's corrupted by a particular ideological structure that needs to be critiqued um, and we need to grow out of. And that's part of my own journey is, is growing out of that. Yeah, that's exactly what you and I talk about, a paradigm shift all the time. And it involves the old paradigm as much as the new one. So what's happening with the old paradigm is that ideology sweeps everything. Yep. So ideology first took over politics. Politics was no longer that you, you, you pick the best guy where you lived and he run affairs for you. That was politics originally. That was right. the point. Let's take the best women and men we have in our community and let them run the community for us, right? right. That was politics. But then politics became completely ideological. And then the ideology came out of politics and now it's swept into academia. Yeah. And you, you, you can no longer work in America or Europe with clinical psychology without having all these political directives of what you must achieve. And they're all about ideology eating everything. It's like, like, so if you're not a psychologist who subscribes to a very specific ideology, you will sooner or later get deplatformed or canceled or thrown out. I mean, this is, this is what's happening with academia. And you see the same thing with mass media. New York Times has become a propaganda machine. You know, he said, we used to be a newspaper that tried every morning to objectively report on the world outside of you. Yeah. No, it's, well, what is CNN and Fox News? Two different TV channels that basically throw pie at each other all the time. And it's entertainment. <laughs> to watch CNN today is a fucking reality TV show. It's like Kardashians, right? Yeah. With their own stars, with their own, you know, pictures and their own fixed faces and their own fake smiles and their own stories. And, and they most of all regret that the villain Trump has left the show because the ratings fell. Right. I'm, I'm sure it's complete television. And, and the same thing, you see the same thing with old industry. This is this this might be the most the nastiest tragedy of them all, right. is that old industry is now being hijacked 
by communication agencies and HR departments to tell them who they can employ and who they must not employ. And they go for skin colors when they decide who should do a certain job instead of who's the most merited person. It's, it's completely hysterical. And of course, they will go down with it. This is not yep. going to make industry stronger. This is not going to make mass media any more credible. This is not going to make politics any more reliable. It's certainly not going to make academia any more interesting if you're young and smart. Yep. So. No, so we, we, we realize these are dying institutions. Yeah. And, you know, Jordan Peterson and Joe Favarki are dear friends. They're stars at the University of Toronto that might keep them there longer than any other academic institutions. But as far as I know right now in Europe, anybody, you know, with a self-interest and a smart mind who used to be really precious for the academic institutions are moving out. They're going somewhere else, right? So what we're doing now instead, we, we're thinking of, so what could that be? And I think there's somewhere in between the spa Mm-hmm. and the retreat <laughs> and the gym mm-hmm. and the academic institution. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in between those things, right. you build something monastery-like, preferably in the countryside with a showroom in the city. Mm-hmm. We convince people that four months of this in your life could do a lot of good to you. Right. right. And that is where you need the world's best clinical psychologist to work yeah. 10 years from. Yeah, no, that, that, and well, let me, let me ask you this, because that's I, I totally agree with uh, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen to the academy. My hope is that, but I'm skeptical, is that there will be a waking up and a transformation. But, you know, how much collapse needs to happen prior to that. But I want to come back to this revitalizing thing. So see if we have the same, similar or different view. Okay. So for me, I'm taking that in relationship to Jean Verveke's, you know, uh, meaning crisis and mental health crisis. Okay. Uh, and I would argue relative to our wealth and our control of the physical and biological, we have been our souls and spirit of, a, you know, and I mean that obviously in a naturalistic sense, but really it's been deprived of religion or philosophy or proper ways of living in a tribe even. Okay, and yeah. part of that has then part of when we see the abuse of the substance abuse, uh, the meaninglessness, nihilism, narcissism, the levels of depression, anxiety, the ner- what I would call the neurotic cluster, um, sort of across the West. Uh, I see that as you know the the soul that's the condition of the human soul in a particular way, and it's a lack of a proper ideology, a proper or narrative or theology or purpose making system that brings communities together. Is that a fair assessment from your vantage point? Yes, and that's why I love your work. But I think what you might do subconsciously, I've talked to Forrest Landry about this, because Forrest Landry and I decided to go online and record conversations because we think alike a lot, but we use very different vocabularies. Yep, okay. My background is economics and psychoanalysis, and I'm European. Forrest Landry was one of the world's leading computer scientists, and then he decided to do metaphysics and philosophy because he had to. But I said to Forrest once, what I love about his work is the same thing I love about your work is that if I would be an AI and suddenly I realized that I would solve problems better than human beings do, or I'd be asked to do it, you know, (laughs) I would go into your kind of work because I don't see anybody else out there who's trying to systematize psychology. Mm, It's not. Yeah, no. So uh, how do you systematize it? Well, some things need to go out. Some, some babies go out with the bathwater, but a lot of bathwater will need to go out to be replaced with new bathwater so the babies can grow. And, and the first thing you need to do then is to present a solid system. And why there is no solid system is because it was not in the interest of the powers that controlled psychology the last 50 years. Everything... If you, if you think of government and large institutions and big corporations and what they would like to get out of something, 
to increase their value. They would prefer to be specialized rather than Mm -hmm. be systemic because if it's specialized, they're in control. Mm -hmm. Now, if you create a psychology department with large ambitions for society as a whole, you will come to a point where you set up, we should have a say in urban planning. Mm. Your students will do that, Greg. They will, yeah. right? They will have those ambitions. They, they'll be a bit big-headed because once they understand what systemic thinking is aspiring towards, right. correctly so and could do, they should have a say when it comes so, to urban planning, certainly compared to the very sort of weak competition they will have when they go into that area. Right. But that, that's the thing. When you, when you get into system theory and you, and you make a systemic version of a field that should have been systemic all along, but was right. split into very small silos totally. where different experts were educated to be these academics who yep. did these different. And then they wrote papers and those papers were published and they were read by a few people. And that gave them certain points, which gave them a oh. salary every month. So they could go back into an even smaller silo. <laughs> so so it's cer- this, this is real critical theory. This is what critical yeah. theory should do, right? right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you look at what actually happened with all these prefixes that were added to all these sort of scientific disciplines over the last 100 years, you come to a point where the academics is so completely decentralized that it only consists of tiny specialized departments at a lot of different universities and colleges around the world who then compete for attention in, in scientific journals to be read by anybody. That is and the of course, they, they then serve the production of ideology. Right. Which is what this was all about. This, this was all about producing ideology so that the government and the large bureaucratic institutions that go with government, that's why it's Confucius in China, and America mm-hmm. and Europe are becoming the same. So these bureaucratic institutions, now including large corporations, could control the rest of us. So it served them. And this is not only psychology. I'm an economist. We saw the same thing happening in economics. And mm. you can't do economics unless you do systemic. Mm-hmm. Because right. economics, per definition, economics and ecology are closely related. We all know that it's meaningless to talk about ecology unless you take in all the satellites of the world and get as much data as you can from all over the world, because we know today that El Nino in the Pacific will affect the weather everywhere else. So right. climate will be affected everywhere else. And every time we throw carbon dioxide out there in the atmosphere, we know for a fact that increased carbon dioxide affects the entire planet. Mm-hmm. Economics is the same way. I think psychology should be looked the same way. Oh. Yep. It, it doesn't make sense to do ecology and economics if we have to do them on a global scale, which of course these institutions tried not to. So the institutions were allowed to be central and they accept only one other institution and it's turned out to be the state and the corporation. <laughs> right. Those are the two forms we got left, the state and the corporation, the perverted priesthood and the perverted king, kingdom. You know, mm. Those are the two things we got left. Right. And they have no interest in any other third installation in there that competes for attention. And that's exactly what split up academics the way they did, to serve their needs and requirements. Right. And what has happened now is that you will discover that you sit in an academic institution in North America, Europe, and you need funding for your research project and you got great students that are on fire, you want to go ahead with your product and realize you're not going to get fine funding for your product unless you appeal to some kind of a communication agency out there. Yep, totally. That, they, that the institution has hired to put its brand yep. onto a TV screen, to advertise <laughs> for its courses, to sell them in a market to students that they try to fool and get money out of and put on loans for the rest of their lives to fund this machinery of specialization. Totally, totally. And ultimately, what's lacking is generalization. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So let's say 
I don't do sociology at all because it's dead, mm -hmm. because anthropology killed it, because anthropology absorbed data. But like mm -hmm. I was interested in psychology and it's exactly how I found you and you found me was the fact that, oh, there's a guy sitting in North America who's trying to make a genuine attempt at systematizing psychology as it should have been. Right. Right. So your product is a renaissance product in that sense. I would mm -hmm. call it the renaissance psychology or the psychological renaissance. Right. Well, I, I certainly, uh, I appreciate that. And that's definitely, I frame it in terms of the enlightenment gap uh, in part, because I certainly agree that the institutional machinations of the state, the corporate, what they were invested in, the contingencies grew it exactly the way you structured. Um, but I also really do also believe that there was a foundational ideological confusion. We did not know what matter and mind was. Hegel gave some frame of reference uh, but the uh, United States coming off of England and its empiricism simply didn't have a frame of reference for the, the field. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, it didn't it didn't know what it was. We literally didn't know whether mental referred to the animal world or the human world or where. Um, and then we institutionalized it. So then we created, well, we have to be a science, at least in the uh, turn of the century. And behaviorism takes off in America precisely because then behavior is the way you carve out the mental through the scientific lens. Well, that's the shit we can see. You know, that's observable. Um, but that's yeah. actually an epistemological break where you say, I'm going to take whatever the piece of the mental is through behavior, through my epistemological science lens that I can see. But it leaves the ontology of mental completely fucked up and confused, you know. Um, it so can I just ask you, maybe it's a different topic altogether, but I think it's been sent to this sort of the breakdown of psychology. When commercialism moved in, and that was in the 1950s, of course, and all these advertising agencies discovered that if they figured out how psychology works, I mean, they got a lot of that from Freud, but he wasn't really psychoanalysis that inspired him, mentioned the got into the world of psychology. Right. And well, they did psychology commercially on a massive scale just to figure out how to sell products to us. Right. Well, both actually both psychoanalysis and behaviors in the 1920s essentially go into marketing and they both get to the fundamental reinforcer of sex and food in particular ways. And certainly John Watson gets actually as a sex scandal and then jumps out of John Hopkins University and goes into a major marketing and teaches people that if you associate your product with sex, or fame or other good things, that association will sell the damn product. And that's actually in the 1920s, then it becomes a, the science of marketing is really becomes, gets ingrained in the science of reinforcement and that sex sells. And uh, that's the, the beginning of it. Then it evolves into cybernetics and com, uh, communication science. And then the technology of the way in which psychological habits and laws and principles manipulate people then gets fused into the technological industrial infrastructure. So the pragmatics of it and its parts get utilized absolutely by many different uh, systems. It can be a very useful thing to know what it is that will get people to click. All the neurologic, all the algorithms that the big, you know, that Tristan's talking about is like, now we can track where people's attention are. We can track how quickly they, you know, what's the schedule reinforcement? What's the distribution of investment? And then how to create an, a field, an environmental field that selects behavior in a particular way. I mean, that's, the, that's sort of psych 101 is behavioral selection. And then you can put that in algorithmic form. It's, a, it's, it's useful shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then also waves and dialectics come into the picture and there oh. are trends and people get sick of things and they want other right. things. And at least what the sort of political establishment today that tries to control both psychology and also tries to control communications of corporations and things like that. You know, where the woke culture has moved in recently, that is built obviously on the idea that guilt sells. 
Yep. So, well, all of so the, there, yeah, there, must, there must have been some point where they assumed that we had so much of the sex and all that or, or whatever. And we're also getting more desperate because advertising doesn't work any longer because people are online. They get more sophisticated. They call it spam. They throw it in the spam box. Yep. They get ad blockers. They just like, can I just get the shit out of my mind completely? Can I stop seeing and hearing it? Cause I hate it. And, and like, the worst perpetrator in history today would be somebody works at an advertising agency in 2021. <laughs> we will probably consider the abolition of advertising the future as even more important than the abolition of slavery. <laughs> I'll let you say that, but, well, but it is a big deal. <laughs> that is, in America, it's a big deal because you think you have to have it, although you all hate it. So it's like, yeah. why would you have to have slavery if you all hate it? It has no longer any economic benefits. If slavery doesn't even add value to anybody longer, you can actually put it under abolition. It's the same thing here advertising. The question is this, who does it feed except the advertisers who go to advertising gods and give each other rewards for crap that doesn't sell the shit any longer, but it just looks good or it's political or ideological well, or whatever. This, this all goes into, yeah. to me, this all goes into the fundamental philosophy of what is human nature. What have we built? What's the techno-industrial capital labor relations that we have built? How did we build it and where are we in relation? And the process by which they built it is very different than where we are now. And that's why we actually have to evolve into a fundamentally different um, guidance structure about our natures, about where we are. And, and I, the digital is gonna force an, a, a huge amount of that. But would, you like also, to give a, would you like to give us some examples from the tree of knowledge on things you think directly we will see in the 2020s? Like examples that, 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 that well, are quite foreseeable I, for the next 10 years that well, are included in the model. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that the tree of knowledge says, okay, in relationship to why I knew that the, after I built the tree of knowledge in 1997, I had the four cones in 1997, within six months of the four cones, I knew the 21st century was going to be a big, huge deal. Okay. Why? Because each one of those massive emergence vectors are an information processing communication network that gives rise to a complex adaptive plane. And the way the digital, virtual, internet, artificial intelligence interface thing, that's a radically different information processing communication system. So it's gonna create a whole ecological plane. So I knew the 21st century, in the 20th century, that was like before the Cambrian explosion, we were like jellyfish, okay? Then the Cambrian explosion, then the brain gets centralized, then it controls the whole body and you start moving around like insects and crabs and shit like that and gives rise to the whole mind. Well, we built the internet and now we're gonna centralize it in some ways in the 21st century and that's gonna open up a whole potential. So that at a very broad level, it tells us the fifth joint point is coming, digital libido <laughs> and everything else. Yeah, and this, this is where it gets scary right. to look into your work and look into my work with Jan, because oh. we worked separately from each other for 20 years Complete. and thought alike, right? So what we call here paradigmatics, which is like, how do you adjust to a new time you live in because technology has changed, paradigmatics. Totally. And that's how paradigmatics works so well in the smaller human scale compared to the huge universal scale, which is emergence vector theory. Absolutely. So you can be within a certain emergence vector like human history. And then you can yep. study the details within that emergence vector by paradigmatics, which is like how do different technologies develop within this bubble then affect what happens inside of totally. it. Totally. And so yeah. we can actually call then the current ecology of this conversation, like the habits and potentia of whatever this fifth joint point is going to be, because now we're going to weave it together. We can kind of see it. My hope my hope is, is that if we can get enough network connection together, get some shared understanding, we can upgrade our fundamental understanding, coordinate with technology and with nature and each other, and achieve a sustainable thing that both restores our sustainability and restores our soul and spirit. And so that we can feel, get rid of all, you know, not all of it, but a lot of the unnecessary angst 
and be able to develop lifestyles um, that okay. Here, here's where I accuse you of Marxism and I become the Nietzsche. Yeah. So, so <laughs> it's like you, you seem like you want everybody to be part and get on this train together, well, right? I, okay, you're a nice guy. You're a Marxist. <laughs> I am the Nietzsche in here saying that yeah. I'm perfectly happy if only a small elite right. of people can actually do this, what you set out to do, so they can talk to the AI and then try to defend the rest of us like we're not good enough for the AI. But can, can the other guys come along anyway somehow? Because for me, this is exodology. This is like who yes, stays in Egypt and who goes to the promised land. <laughs> totally. and, and to be honest about it, what you're talking about requires so much of the human beings that are involved in the project, yes. both in the collaborative way uh, and, and, and separately on their own. That I think it's 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 more feasible to think about a new elite, what we call the netocrats and the talking yep. that no, no, could no. grasp this and be part of this and then together with the AI possibly go towards that kind of singularity. I think that's inevitably the first wave, okay? You know, you exodus into the first wave, but I certainly, I mean, I'm a clinician, feminist, feminine clinician at heart, Bart. I have to look at the, you know, <laughs> I have to connect. I have to think about the people left behind and wonder about how you come back for uh, that and, and, and hold that and create some sort of optimistic frame that creates an ecology that maximizes likelihood of dignity, well-being, and integrity for all. That's it. That is my... Uh, that's my optimistic, naive spirit. Yeah, know, and, and, and as psychologists, you would be fired if you said anything else, but I'm an economist. I am allowed right, to more mean, cynical. Right. So so we, I'll well, just say, I, I'm going to give the masses drugs and games and <laughs> off they go somewhere. Go. I mean, and then the machines and us, the elite or whatever, will do the rest. But that's my right. worldview, okay? There we go. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't I, change a, the know, bigger yeah. picture, though. It doesn't it, change it, the well, bigger picture. Listen, I, we're all on a journey, right? And, is that, yeah. and the last thing I am is authoritarian, so I'm never going to try to control anything. So I can be a Marxist maybe ideologically in some ways, but I hate any kind of totalitarian control. So I'm also a libertarian in many ways. And so it's sort of yeah. like, uh, you know. No, I would uh, say I would say that my goal is that the world will become like India and not China. Mm -hmm. But I think well, those right. are the I, only options. I, I'm terrified of China. I, th I you know, the, yeah. when I first read 1984, I was like, how the hell would you actually ever control all of the knowledge in a particular way? Can you really go out and get a newspaper and erase it? Well, now with the digital age, actually, you could have totally a 1984 global control system if you actually got centralized control power. You could totally see that. And uh, when you can control the distribution of what people have access to, if you had a centralized totalitarian control information center with the internet, you could actually see in 1984 happen and that terrifies me, definitely. Yeah, no, and I don't think we can avoid it, but we can think further. That's what I'm yes. Hegelian. The right. solution right. is right. to do 1984, but do more than that. Well. <laughs> and that well, hopefully opens up. Not too much 1984. <laughs> well, that's what we like with more sustainable and resilient systems than dictatorships, because the good thing with dictatorships is that they tend not to last. Right. They fall under their own weight, sooner or later. That's the one. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to touch base with you about, because we referred to it in terms of the, the corporate, you have talked a lot about the authentic phallus and, and the dialectic between masculine and feminine and the need to reframe sort of the archetypal masculine into sort of two heads, as it were. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd love to, 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 to dialogue a little bit about what your insights are in relationship to that. And but if, if you imagine a nomadic tribe that's on the move, you're yep. gonna have guys at the front, you're gonna have women at the end, right? Yep. And you have the elders and, and the children with the women at the back. And you need to support them because, you know, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. You got to go and see brothel, madam, to put your penis somewhere. Otherwise, there will not be a heritage and everything will die with you. And right. hey, men hate that. They love the yeah. idea of heritage. Right? <laughs> so at the end of the day, women have the last card. Mm. So I'm strongly pro-women here. 
Please understand. But to lead in this sense, it's just that somebody's got to walk at the front mm-hmm. and that means take a bigger risk. Mm. And that leadership has to be split because otherwise it gets stupid. Mm. So the first instance of trying to understand how human intelligence must operate is that it must operate by dividing its different specialties. So if you say, if you say you're a young man and you look up to mm. the elders in your tribe, yep. it's precisely by the elders showing gratitude and, and respect towards one another as mm-hmm. different specialists that you understand that this is what leadership is. Right. And the fundamental difference there lies completely on the masculine side. So that's mm-hmm. why I don't do yin and yang. That comes later. Taoism right. yeah. is too okay. early with these things. Okay. The first thing is the, is the two-headed phallus, and it comes in two versions. First, it comes the separation of, of the king and the priest, or the chief king and, and the priest. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So the chief chain symbolizes, if you take Nietzsche's will to power and go mm-hmm. deeper into it, you realize there are more wills inside the will to power than just one will. Mm-hmm. It's not unified. So the first thing is that there's a will to intelligence and that's mm-hmm. the curiosity in us. That's like, mm-hmm. oh, I love to read books and I love to figure out what's happening every morning. Yep. I watch the world news and, you know, you know, what are the neighbors up to? Whatever? All this curiosity we naturally have is, is a will to intelligence. There's a will totally. to become more intelligent, to find out things. And that actually is all of history up until now. Mm. Because that is everything research. That's, for example, in science. You do research properly. You, you figure out everything has worked up until now. Sure. You no, don't know what absolutely. the future is like, but you figure out how everything has worked up until now. That is the priestly call, the will yep. to intelligence. But that needs to be complemented, which is uniquely human. This is what machines can figure out how to do. Mm-hmm. And that is the will to transcendence. Mm-hmm. And the will to transcendence is not to escape anything. It's not escaping. The will mm-hmm. to transcendence is that what if we worry, make the world or presume that the world is different tomorrow than it is today? So mm-hmm. if you're walking, if you're on the move, mm-hmm. you might be in a green area today, but you might be in a dry area tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But you still have to cross the dry area to get to the next green area. Otherwise, you mm-hmm. die. Now, mm-hmm. you have to figure out how to cross through the dry area and survive and then get to the next green area and probably conquer it from somebody else who got there before right. you. Okay, mm-hmm. all those things you need to do, need to, you need to figure that out. And the kind of inspiration that that requires is the will to transcendence. Mm-hmm. So both these two worlds are phallic. Mm-hmm. And if you look at men in general, at least when men collaborate brilliantly, like in mm-hmm. a good corporation that happens to work mm-hmm. and somebody was the innovator and the entrepreneur and they got started. What happens in these companies when they do work really well is that you always find these two phallic traits and you find mm-hmm. the mutual respect. Any you know, organization has, uh, it has a, what would you say? You have um, uh, the chairman and the secretary. Mm-hmm. Again, same functions, right? So the phallus is split. And the people who understood this the most in, during antiquity were the Persians. And therefore, they constructed the first empire. Ironically, the first empire was Persian before the Chinese and the Indians and the Romans mm-hmm. came up with their empires. Mm-hmm. And, and they constructed according to the two, two-headed phallus um, version of it. And that is Zoroastrianism. That's why I love it so right. much because they realized the event can happen with only one guy, but it can only be maintained it only becomes resilient Process. and sustainable mm-hmm. by installing the phallus split. Mm. And the third position, of course, that balances the other two, then automatically becomes the matriarch. So when you look at, for example, the Jewish Exodus, which is built according to this, it was rewritten after the Jews encountered the Persians and mm. Judaism and Zoroastrianism influenced each other. And the Judaism eventually wrote the final version of the Exodus out of Egypt. It was three siblings. Mm. Moses was the priest, Aaron was the chief, and Mariam was the matriarch. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. So Marianne would walk at the very end of the Exodus, and the two brothers would walk at the front. And one of them would obviously be, you know, the chief and the other one would be the priest. And of course, when the chief overdid his thing, the priest would come back and haunt him and say, that, well, God told me this and this, you must do properly as a chief, because otherwise your will to transcend us is not right. in the right direction. Mm. You must not have any other gods besides me. It wasn't about mm. a God. It was about you must not have any other end point for right. the Exodus than this specific end point. Mm. That's where you build a temple to God. So you right. tell people we got to build a temple to God and that we have to build in this place. Actually, the place itself is God. That's the sacred thing in the Exodus. So, so this is how movements must occur. And if you try to op operate them any other way, like currently Xi Jinping in China is running that country as a dictatorship, then it looks more at the Egyptian model Mm. which was like Natum, 1300 before Christ, Egyptian. And that mm. failed and became miserable. And, you know, Stalin did the same thing. Hitler did the yep. same thing. We have examples of Xi Jinping before. They weren't very good if you look at it from the point of resilience, but they were mm -hmm. certainly successful for a short period of time and created enormous wealth, but, you know, eventually fell apart and in havoc. So that's, that's what's scary about the system. So mm -hmm. this is the two-headed fellows. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you find the same traits in psychology because you also you see, see that men and women are attracted to different things. Women, okay. for example, can handle what will be tyranny in a male world. Would for women only be, yeah, the oldest woman, of course, she takes charge because she has no self-interest any longer because he's left sexuality. Mm -hmm. And once you leave sexuality behind, or at least sexual reproduction behind as a woman, Mm -hmm. You can be in charge of the entire matriarchy mm -hmm. and you don't, you don't behave like a tyrant at all. Men cannot give their power to one guy only. That's impossible. Yep. And it's a failure on the masculine side that we need mm -hmm. the two-headed fellows. Mm -hmm. So that's the way it should be seen. Yeah. The other thing I really, and yes, I, I mean, one of the things I speak a lot about is sort of um, the uh, sort of archetypal feminine energy, the archetypal masculine energy, how that gets manifested in a wide variety of different Lives. And now the danger or confusion our ideologies are trying to impose upon that. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some yeah. narrative, anyway. I, I let women speak for themselves. And I know Camille yeah. Pogla's current product, she's doing North America. It's very similar to the one we're doing in Europe and Asia. And that's why it so gets inspired by Paglia. But I, I would say that at least on the male side, after you've divided between the chief and the priest, you need to divide between the warrior and the hunter. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different thing to kill an animal than to kill a human being. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so, and to eat the human being is very different from eating deer. It's not recommended if you want to survive, okay? Because you get all kinds of brain diseases, apparently, if you start eating yourself. So <laughs> try to avoid that, right? That's eat your nails, that's your that's hair, if you're a teenage girl. But once you're done more than hair and nails, stop eating yourself, right? So, uh, we can, good, we can good. say that's pathology. The other thing, yeah. though, that, that speaks to that I want to at least uh, touch in on is you, have a, you bring a very important message, as far as I'm concerned, that we need to hear about religion and theology and what it actually means. Because especially in the United States, as you know, we're trapped in this idea of, well, do you believe in a, you know, you're religious if you believe in some guy with a beard and, you know, it's concrete. And then science comes along and tells us that it's not wise to be religion. And this is a really naive way of thinking about religion, of course. Uh, and yeah, I just and like you, to, don't, you, know, you don't think political ideology is religious? Yes, I, I do. Woke, I woke, <laughs> is, woke is the fundamentalism that America got because you underrated the fundamentalism of Islam and Christianity. <laughs> didn't realize it could pop up in all kinds of places. <laughs> the people who are woke in America today are exactly like Islamists in the Middle East. All my friends in Morocco and Egypt who finally got rid of the fundamentalism, say the same thing. Oh, God, you have the same problem now. Mm. 
were these people higher than anything else, higher than that, who are also pursue victimhood cults and they're poisoned everything they get close to, right? No, I think everything is religion. It's the mm-hmm. first sentence in the Synthism book by Barton Sodekis. Mm-hmm. Everything is religion. And those things that pretend not to be religion are the ones that are truly dangerous. Right. Yep. Religion is only how human beings connect to one another and how we view one another. And bad religion is that we view one another in a destructive way. And good religion is how we view one another in a constructive way. It's just yeah. like a good religion is a story about how can I extend outside of my own tribe to try to relate peacefully and mutually beneficially to people from other tribes. And that's what religion always try to do. We needed religion desperately after we permanently settled because the bloodbaths that we pursued first mm had to be contained. The historian Peter Turchin has shown the first 1,000 years of permanent settlement to the river valleys of China, Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. bloodbaths. The mm-hmm. only way to contain that was to create narratives again mm-hmm. that could make mm-hmm. us just not kill each other just yet, but try yeah. to you know, be peaceful with one another. And, and where Sorastinism comes into the picture is what I think is the most important thing that happened during antiquity was Cyrus the Great, the Persian conqueror who conquered Babylonia uh-huh. Uh, Babylon and 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 he so he conquered Mesopotamia, and he was the first known king who stormed into enemy territory mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. cooking their children in oil. Mm. <laughs> he just realized that maybe I shouldn't just cook their children in oil and have them against me the rest of eternity. Maybe I should just allow them to keep their territory, but under me. Uh. So I just said, no, you can keep Babylonia. You can have it. Huh. You can have your own religion. That's that's the way you, you would say. You can have your own religion, but that religion be a local religion within mm. a global system we call Zoroastrianism that perfectly well allows for local religions to be practiced. So Cyrus the Great, in probably the most radical, again, ethics here, the most mm-hmm. radical truth that's an act ever done in human history, Cyrus the Great walked all the way through Babylon and came to the temple of Marduk, who was like the Zevs of the Babylonians, their highest god, Mm -hmm. and kissed the feet of the highest god in the Babylonian pantheon. That is where all our ideas of universal rights and and the benefit of free speech and diversity of opinion, all those ideas that we in the West now treasure are originally (laughs) Persian. This is where the West starts. So the best things with the West starts right here. And, and that, I think, was a much, to me, more important act than Christ on the cross. Sorry, Christians, mm-hmm. but I reduce Christianity to a local religion in my world, mm-hmm. and I prefer Sorastrianism <laughs> to be the global one. Because according to me, that is a much, much more important act for humanity today, that the Cyrus the Great did. Yeah. So this is, and I, this is, here's where I connect into this. I find so, I get so much, this enriches my soul and revitalizes my spirit there, Kyle Alexander. So here's my point. What I, so what, if I take a tree of knowledge look, okay, What's happening at the culture levels, everybody's then guided by their systems of justification, okay? And then these are the narratives. And then we're inside our tribe and we're inside our narratives and, we're, and then we're basically formed and framed by these narratives. But one of the things we absolutely have to realize in the meta-modern age, if you wanna use that term, I know you're mixed about that, but anyway, is to get adjacent to our narratives, okay? To back up and see narrative in relation and to have an attitude that affords our capacity to do that. And so what you describe as the Zoroastrian and the local, the local religions are then the systems of justification that people engage in. And then what is the capacity to ground ourselves so that we can move between systems of justification, keep our sanity, keep our flexibility and keep our you know, coherence at the same time afford all of this pluralism. To me, that's the kind of mindset 
uh, that we need to grow into. In the, yeah, in the it is incredibly complicated. But for yeah. it to succeed, if, if you're going to have some kind of imperial order that could work, at least mm -hmm. at least for, say, a continent or a larger part of the world, if we even decide that, because otherwise we're just left with small city-states, tons of anarchy, half the world left behind, the digital taking over everything. That, that is the nasty picture 50 years from now we want to try to avoid. But if you want to have some kind of imperial order, then you have you even need three religions because you need to keep the split between the world to transcendence and the world to intelligence. And the way the Zoroastrians in Persia did it was they had one priestly cult and then different mm -hmm. military cult and were completely different religions. They were not even related to one another. So, and, but the benefit again of splitting up, formally splitting up, mm -hmm. like power sharing, when it's instituted, institutionalized right. from the very beginning, like it's there in the constitution. The, the benefit of also splitting up religion like that from the very beginning is that people then realize that there is no center of control here. Mm -hmm. There is no one ideology. There is no one religion. There is right. no Pope in the Vatican who dictates everything and who represents God on earth because Xi Jinping is trying to be political Pope. That's what he is, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you don't have that. We imitate in the West by separating church and state, but it right. didn't work because mm -hmm. state itself became separate between state and capital. They mm -hmm. pretended not to be religious at all. And all they could then be was to be commercial, ruthlessly, ruthlessly self-centered and, 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 you know, expansive in, in their approach. And I mean, mm -hmm. the reason why the West alone plundered the planet mm -hmm. was that state and, and capital are no, under no religion in our mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at least with Confucianism, at least the Chinese probably could screw their system towards, you know, getting away from, oh, of course, they're destroying the planet as well as the Americans are at the moment, because there are a lot of them. But it's at least possible within Confucianism to understand, oh, we should actually save the planet and we will therefore institute that that's a priority within a bureaucracy. That is possible within Confucianism, but we don't have any equivalent to that in the West. Right. We, we never developed even that. We, mm. we, to me, state is under anarchy in the West. Capital is under anarchy in the West. And we only have a religion for mothers and children, basically. It's called Christianity. Mm. And of course, some people who realize this, they want a Christian revival. I can understand and respect that. Mm -hmm. But for me, I think we need an even bigger take because I cannot stand starting with the Greeks or starting with the Romans or <laughs> starting with the Hebrews and say that's the history of the world. Because that's like... <laughs> The Chinese Indian years ago, oh God, we're sick of you Europeans, right? And you're American. <laughs> no, we're part of this too. There are more of us. Right. We're also getting more powerful. We're taking over. Mm -hmm. So any new narrative has to be global in scope. It yes. has to include all cultures. It has to include the entire history of humanity, at least the last 10,000 years, and take that into perspective and find any good ideas you've got out there and say, that's a good idea. That's a good, that's a best practice. That's the best practice that can be included in the imperial order. And if right. the leaders themselves pick two different religions, right. Right. then they show everybody else that you should have different religions. That's a good thing. You should have difference of opinion. And the only religion left to unite the two, which is the Sorasinism, is like Hegelianism. It's just a formal, empty envelope within which you have a system of a split opinions and split backgrounds and split, split narratives, because the only thing that makes sense, and that's what Sorastor says, my religion is constantly on the move and never changing. Nah. It can never nah. in itself be defined right. except uh, as a form. Except it. So that's the, to me, Bard, that's beautiful. I mean, the reason is, you know, if we think about where we are globally and what kind of thing we need and the idea of reaching back into history and finding 
what would be the epicenter of frame that historically has shaped us and where we would find that and how to bring that to where we are so that it can provide uh, some sort of context for understanding. It's a- you know, Yeah, and this I is not even new. You can, you can go to the United Nations building in New York City, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And the only thing you find when you go into the entrance is the Cyrus Cylinder. So this is a copy of mm -hmm. Cyrus the Great's directive for how to run his empire out of Babylon, a Persian empire, mm -hmm. 530 before Christ, right? So, so uh -huh. that is the only document we have with the origin of universal human rights. Hmm. It wasn't the Chinese, it wasn't the Europeans, it was the Persians who invented it in collaboration with and in dialogue with the Babylonians. Two cultures meeting, how do let's we solve this issue? Let's remember One our past And Judaism was born out of it. Judaism okay. was born out of it. The second temple built in Jerusalem was sponsored by the Persians who basically mm -hmm. gave the money to the Jews and said, you're the perfect nation within an imperial order. And we don't have any larger, we don't have any other larger than tribe, uh, larger scale than tribe uh, organization of human beings, except for nation and empire. We tried mm -hmm. to invent corporation as one too, but it isn't really because it doesn't include society and is there for a profit purpose and it will also fold one day and die. So nation and empire are the only two forms we have. So we got to work with those. And I would love then to, instead of psychology serving within such a system as a specific institution, then has to be split to serve that system, serve that system, whether it is to make the commercials even more obnoxious and irritating and, you know, and, you know, have right. even more loans, like right. borrow right. even more money from the bank to consume even more. Otherwise you don't exist. Like unless you shop, you don't exist. Like, that whole idea, that evil idea of psychology, which I think was perfected by Mark Zuckerberg and he should die for it, to be honest about it. You know, if you employ 3000 psychologists at Facebook to make every Facebook user an addict, you're evil, right? Yeah, if that isn't evil, then I don't know what evil is. So that's the end of it, I think. I, I think we're reaching peak advertising right now when it gets right. so damn desperate that we see actually what it's like. But, but behind that is the free and open algorithm, which is all we need to find out where we want to go online to then get informed to then make informed decisions for ourselves in our lives. And that is part of psychology where psychology should be, of course. Well, of course, that's where I certainly agree with that. And I think that we, you know, what, what feels to be happening is that there's both a sense of the values and, a sense, and ethics and a sense of the understanding. And, and certainly my whole vision of Enlightenment 2.0 is what was the architecture of scientific understanding that came out of, you know, Kant and Newton and then how to upgrade it so that then it turns into a philosophy that then connects and revitalizes a religious, uh, you know, sense that that carries back to the history of the kinds of ways in which we were organized, uh, say, in the Zoroastrian frame. Yeah, sure, absolutely. We're looking for it. We're digging deeper, and we're working together, and we're working in parallel. And obviously, we 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 have the same spirit because we hit the same stuff constantly. We've done it for over twenty years here now. Amen, it's a great brother. thing to see. And the way to describe it is that you could either approach the world scientifically, you can approach human beings scientifically, that's called psychology. And the word mm -hmm. should be saved exactly for that. It's the science mm -hmm. of the human and, 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 and the human psyche. And the way to approach it is to go get as close to philosophy now as possible, not, not, not be frightened of being as close as possible to philosophy to get the inspiration from philosophy and put that energy into psychology. I do the same thing. I'm a philosopher who's closely aligned with natural sciences where psychology belongs. And of course, you can't do philosophy unless you sort of reason with Immanuel Kant and these guys about how the human mind operates and why it operates the way it does, you know. Wow. And it's a deeply philosophical issue, except that I take the liberty 
to be an artist in that sense and be speculative about it. I don't have to prove anything in my books. Yeah. <laughs> but I, my books stand completely on the freshness of the ideas in the book. Totally, totally. Yeah. Which no. means they're there to inspire artists and inspire scientists to pursue Amen. their different missions. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Nope, I'm, I'm the systematist that's trying to get all the pieces right, but I love our kiss, our, our parallel process and the way we've intersected has been a beautiful thing. Yeah, you can't, you can't do system without doing all of these things, or at least to say, here are some, you know, part of the system that I don't specialize in, but other people right. do, but mm -hmm. they're certainly part of the system, so you know where they're at and how they relate exactly. to what exactly. I do specialize in, which is this, right? That's okay. how it works. Yeah, exactly. Well, it seems cool. like we're coming to near the end. I'm wondering if there's any any other topics or things you'd want to share with folks listening to this. Uh, I would say that if you followed me and Greg this long into the conversation, and you know, it, then the intellectual deep web might be for you. So the intellectual uh -huh. deep web is a transatlantic, actually, it's a global network these days, and people around the world, both students and teachers, and you know, people who should have done academics are getting bored with it and went out. Uh, it's it's the most yeah, I think right now it's thought-provoking, challenging. Uh, it's very artistic, experimental. Uh, certainly tons of free space to elaborate on things and different ideas. It's right and left and north, south and west and east. And yeah, it, it's really refreshing. And it came out of, I think it came out of Jordan Peterson when he went on tour. Mm. There were people who sort of saw the importance of the Jordan Peterson character. Yeah. And it came out of Toronto, Canada, and I think Scandinavia first, but then it, mm -hmm. London was on within a week. And suddenly we realized we had friends around the world who got connected. English is the common shared language in the network. Yeah. That's all there's to it. But there are so many, you'll discover that so many of these podcasts you probably follow already sort of overlap with you and I do, Greg, that are part of the Intellectual Deep Web already. Yep. So you, you find me and Greg, I think both on yep. Facebook mm -hmm. and you know, send a little message or something like that or try to get access to there and say you're interested and then we can reconnect you with us in the Interactive Deep Web. That's, that's beautiful. A good place to start. Yep, yeah. I got I got sucked into that in the fall of 2018, I think it was, and that's when all of a sudden my eyes got open. It's a beautiful ecology uh, of netocrats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and other, it is. And other folks, and uh, I really exactly. do. Yeah, I think that's a great That's great what it suggestion. is. Yeah. The heretics right. are there. Yeah, yeah the there heretics are there yeah. forming some sort of digital exodus. Ah. Yes, there you go. Sure. All righty. I gotta go. Ahead. Have a nice one, okay? Right. Nice weekend Thank to you. you. Thanks so much. Big love. All right. Yes.